Hello, everybody. PodBN's back again with another election edition 2021. Talking now to the other mayoral candidate in normal, Mark Teratilli. This is a rematch between Teratilli and Coos. Last time, Teratilli only lost by 11 votes, famously. So if six people would have gone the other way, would have ticked Teratilli instead of Coos, then we would be talking to Mayor Teratilli right now. So... This is that example where people talk about how important every single vote in the municipal elections is. And uh, you should get out on April 6th and choose which one of these candidates you want to have represent you in making these important decisions on. Before we go there, of course, we're going to thank Little Beaver Brewery. My dad has traveled all over Europe. He worked for the military, and he traveled all over Europe drinking beer in different places. And he has one type of beer glass that he says is the best. It's not like a pint glass you would see here. It's a half liter glass, and the key thing is it curves up at the top. That way when you're pouring the beer, it gets a nice foamy head on it, and that head stays for most of the time while you're drinking the beer. And he's been searching all over the country here since he moved back to the States, trying to find a place that had a glass like that. And he was so happy to see that that is what Lil Beaver uses to serve their German-style Krolsch in. And so that just illustrates to me the attention to quality and detail that they have over at Little Beaver Brewery. And I hope that you give them a shot and see if you like what they have to offer as much as my dad did. And now, Mark Teratilli, running for mayor of the town of Normal. Welcome back to PodBN. This is Jeremy, joined with Justin and uh, Normal Mayor candidate Mark Tertilli. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we'll start out by uh, just tell us a little bit about, uh, obviously, you ran four years ago for this uh, for this same office, but some things have changed since then. So um, tell us a little bit about your background for listeners that don't know about you and why you're running for mayor. Sure. So I'm a politically independent candidate. This is a nonpartisan race. I have always held to the principle that you your vote is your voice. And so you vote for the candidates that most align with your views and to vote for anybody else just because you think they're going to win, but they might not represent you as well, kind of disenfranchises yourself. So I have voted for Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, true independents, up and down the ticket from national to local elections. And I take that approach of representation very seriously. And I think that's what's been missing in the town of normal, because we've had sort of a monolithic council for at least the last 20 years. They've all had a similar mindset. They're all elected by winner-take-all majority. And that has led to a lot of 7-0 unanimous type decisions. And regardless of the ideology behind it, I don't think that's healthy. There's a lot of people in this community that have different opinions. You can see it in some of the projects that have been proposed, whether it's uh, One Uptown Circle, Trail East, the underpass, the mural, bike trails, roads, there's um, a lot of differing opinions going on. And unfortunately, the current administration has really been working to exclude a lot of those. We had the most seriously limiting public comment policy in the state for years. Uh, It's still an issue. There's three Open Meetings Act violations pending before the Attorney General's office. So representation is a big deal. And I wanna bring more people, more voices from this community into the conversation. We've got very talented and diverse people from all over the world that have great things to contribute. We need to represent them better. We need to have more diversity on the council. So that's that's just one issue to begin. 
Well, I mean, that, yeah, you hit on a ton of stuff there. So let's let's uh, kind of tee it up this way. Of uh, let's say day one, uh, you walk in your mirror. Um, what's the first issue that you that you want to tackle? Where are we going first? Well, again, I, I'm I'm hoping to see that the first thing we would have is more diverse representation because regardless of who wins, uh, you know, Chris Coos is still a resident of the community if I were to win and thousands of people that support him are still residents of the community. So it's not like we need to swing everything the other way. We just need to make sure that all voices are at the table. In terms of um, more specific policy things, uh, for me, the, the first thing to do is to end the emergency order. Uh, this power that the mayor has to unilaterally make decisions was granted to him almost a year ago. It was intended to last 48 hours, and we've had it for nearly a year. It's not a healthy way to run government. Uh, we've seen the confusion that has resulted from executive orders. So regardless of whether we think the decision to you know, ban parties or groups of 10 was good or bad, the point is it was legally ambiguous because it's this mere executive order. And we see the same thing at the state level. There's no reason we can't have proper representational government again, where the council can convene, even if it's an emergency meeting, even if it's electronic, which is allowed. We can meet within five minutes, have a decision that carries the full force of law. Um, and I think we'll be on much stronger footing that way. And it all circles back to representation once again. And, uh, you know, we elect people for a reason. Our government is designed that way for a reason. And we need to honor that. Do you, do you think, since you brought up COVID and some of those, do you think that some of those decisions like limiting the party size or, or groups or whatnot, do you think those were the wrong decisions or do you more, are you more indicting the process that it wasn't debated and, and council didn't arrive at a decision? Exactly. Exactly. Because now you have one person making all the rules as opposed to the representative government, the people that we elected. It's legally ambiguous and there's questions as to how enforceable it is. We've got lawsuits pending over it. It's, you know, so yes, very big indictment of the process. And on top of that, then there was a lack of information because the health department, our local health department wasn't brought in on these decisions. And they're the ones that are the experts in this arena. So regardless of how I feel about COVID or how Chris feels, there are people with much more medical expertise that need to be brought into the conversation. And when you're not having the conversation, when you're just issuing edicts, that's a, to me, an, a, not the healthiest practice. Would any of those positions have been different? Um, you know, had you been there and it gone through the process, would, would you have largely done the same thing? Or were there missteps or, or pieces that you said, I would not have done this or I would have done this differently? Uh, I think the, the biggest one for me would have been uh, the issues surrounding, uh, say, Joe's Station House and some of those closings. And this was a classic case of saying one thing and, and doing another. The mayor said, you know, if we have a complaint, then we'll refer it. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're issuing citations over this stuff. So uh, we had very, very isolated incidents. Those restaurants were not the cause of the virus spread in this community, uh, as far as we can tell. And I, I don't think it was really effective to come down on them. I don't think we changed the curve in any way whatsoever. What we did do is divide the community. Uh, again, it's just another example of how a lot of the policies and the way that things have been enacted have been divisive. And so I want to bring a better approach that's more inclusive so that we can have a true discussion. Um, and that's one particular example. I would have done something different. Wouldn't the community have been divided regardless of that decision, though? I mean, if the restaurants were able to stay open um, and not be penalized for that, you, it would still divide the community. It's a divisive topic, right? It um, is. It is. I would agree with that. So, I mean, having to pick one side or the other is a 
position that not a lot of people, uh, and that's why we have trouble getting candidates to run for office sometimes. Not a lot of people want to be put in that position, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you that COVID is, and it's interesting, it kind of cuts diagonally across the traditional party lines in that. Um, so that is a difficult topic politically, but I believe difficult as that is, divisive as that topic is, going about it in a way that is in murky legal territory only makes it worse. And so at least we could have had that aspect of it in a more controlled manner so that those people, at least they wouldn't be upset over the way we've gone about it. Now we just left with the decision itself. Outside of keeping uh, perhaps, you know, not, not what, what's, what do I want to say, not penalizing those that chose to stay open. What other decisions uh, specific to COVID would you have done or wanted to see done differently? Um, An interesting question. <laughs> well, I mean, and I ask just because, again, it is a divisive topic that and COVID is certainly something that's been around for a year now. And, and unfortunately, it's probably still going to be a matter of, of top news for the next six to 12 months. Um, right. So that's going through this campaign after you're elected. What kinds of things are you going to when these types of issues, let's say we have another um, spike in the numbers right. in the end of April, um, what what types of things are you going to, can you do and would you want to do uh, when you're mayor? That's, so yes, that is, a, that is a good question. So part of the problem with something like this, and I, I just have a smattering of it, I am no expert in this, I'm not an immunologist. <laughs> These boom bust curves, they just kind of happen out there. It's, it's the nature of an outbreak and infection. It's going to have a trajectory that is largely out of your control. So you can fight against it. You can not fight against it. It will still do kind of what it wants. So uh, I had traveled around the country with um, a job I do where I'm, I'm helping not-for-profits raise money. And we go to a lot of similarly sized cities. And one of them in particular did have a mask mandate. And it was no more effective than the surrounding cities. It did cause, again, a lot of consternation within the community, but I thought it was unnecessary. So now that we have more information, we've got a, essentially a year to look at it. We can say that masking is effective, uh, but mask mandates aren't necessarily effective. We can talk about mand mandating shutdowns for gatherings, and we find that there are unintended consequences that people will gather on their own in garages in an even less safe environment. So to kind of circle back to the question itself, rather than the town being the agent of change and being the responsible agent, I would rather have individuals take care of it. I, I want 55,000 people in the, in the community all being responsible for safety rather than a select few up at the top. And so I would, you have encouragement, uh, and to me, the biggest part of that is, again, maintaining the proper representational process and making sure that whatever issues are handed down are done so in a legal way that carries the full force of law. So I would have encouraged people to work through the process, through representational government, work with the Illinois Department of Health, work with the McLean County Department of Health, and whatever recommendations they have, work on enforcing those. But for having the, the town come up with its own specific criteria, I think, uh, is kind of outside of our purview. So uh, would you use, 
I was just going to, sorry, Jeremy, along the same lines, I was just trying to think, you know, we did show up, our community showed up at the top of a couple lists when it came to the the speed of growth uh, of the virus in our area. Um, And I think a lot of people contributed that to Illinois State University uh, and some of the college students, obviously being a normal, is there any way the town could have worked with the college any better uh, to help some of that spread? Because I mean, I, I don't think as a principal, I think most people would agree with it, what you what you said. You know, it would be nice if everybody took personal responsibility. Right. Um, but but if if you have that many young people that tend not to make the best decisions always anyway, how does you know where where does that where does that connection happen between right. the town of normal ISU and, and um, requiring them to do anything? Right. So in that regard, again, you've got a large grouping in close proximity with an infectious virus. So even if you, and we saw it, right? We said, you know, no more parties, no more gatherings, masks, all that stuff, and it still happened. So I think the key response is, okay, in this particular case with COVID, now that we've learned more about it, those people are at fairly low risk. So they get the infection, they're not as bad off as an older population. So I think the key is not so much prevention and lockdown and driving them underground as it is isolation keeping them apart from the more critically endangered members of the community, older folks, family members. So you can talk about policies similar to what we have at Wesleyan. We have the Titan Pledge where it's not just about what we're doing in terms of masking and isolation and distance. It's who are we interacting with? Are we being conscientious about getting outside of our little group that we're normally exposed to? And so, those sorts of measures, I think, could be more effective than saying, okay, if you're going to be here on campus, stay on campus. If you're already off, don't come back. Those kinds of things would be a more effective approach necessarily. Well, normally we uh, we spend about half of the podcast here on, uh, on on COVID issues, and it came to the first part instead of the second part. So I guess okay. we'll just kind of flip what we normally talk about. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned uh, in your opening there about um, some of the projects uptown, uh, Trail East, the One Normal Plaza, uh, Uptown 2.0, obviously all been hot hot button issues. Uh, everything from the mural to the vacant first floor to the, uh, sh- the overpass underpass, or should we go over the tracks? Um, I, I don't know where you want to start or kind of walk through those, but give give uh, listeners your thoughts when it comes to each of those uh, issues. Should we be there? What's the role of, of Normal? What's your view? It's in the details. A lot of these projects are not necessarily good or bad. It's, is it the right time? Is it the right priority? And how are we going about it? I'll, I'll start with Trail East, for example, the one that's yet to be, have ground broken three years later. Um, when they first proposed it, you know, I stood in front of the council and I said, okay, this has been a part of your 20 year old plan. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but how's it going to be done? How big are the incentives going to be? How much tax money will be devo- diverted from unit five? Can we preserve the existing architecture? What about the mural? Can we have street level parking that's still accessible to the public? There are ways to incorporate all these concerns and have a project that satisfies the desires of the developer, satisfies the vision of the plan, and satisfies the concerns of the residents. They said, oh, it's just the early stages. Don't worry about it. We'll come back eight months later. And guess what? None of that stuff is being done. It's a huge incentive package. They're using TIF money. They're cutting off all the parking, and they're going to tear down the mural and the building. So um, to me, again, that was 
a representational issue. You had 5,000 people sign a petition saying, please, whatever you do, save the mural somehow. And they said, well, we just don't recognize petitions. So it, it's, it becomes this soup of not just the dollars, not just the developers, but how we're even going about it and to what extent. So for me, I want to see a project that incorporates what those other voices in the community wanted. You know, some of the travels that I talked about was down in Kentucky, where they had these beautiful old distilleries that were abandoned, but they were four stories high with beautiful brick facades. And they literally just kept the front of the building, jacked it all up behind with braces and built brand new structure behind it, fairly similar to what they did with Medici. There's ways to preserve that kind of architecture. I mean, when you sit out in Emac and Bolios and you look out the window across, you see this quaint old building, it's gonna disappear and you're gonna see steel and glass. So it doesn't have to be that way. And I would go about these projects in a way that is more accommodating of all the voices in the community. On, on top of that, then we start looking at the priorities. Okay, how much money goes to the planning, to the debt, to the interest versus how much are we spending on our roads? How much are we doing to address our water quality issues? Um, then it becomes a question of priorities as well. What, so one of the topic, go yeah, ahead, Justin. No, please go ahead. I, I think I'm on delay today here. So we'll okay. have to, we, we do very little editing. Maybe we'll edit this part out. We'll see. Um, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the items you, you hit on there was incentives um, for, for the, the downtown or for uptown uh, buildings. Um, what's your views when it comes to those like, is there a place for those? If so, what uh, should we be doing incentives? Is that the right time? Because there's been a lot of talk of everything from Portillo's to Brandt to, um, you know, the, the pub downtown, you know, what, where, where does that come in in your mind? Where's appropriate? Incentives definitely play a role, but the way the town has traditionally done them, they are preferential. They're one-off deals. They take a lot of time. And again, they wind up dividing the community. Okay, um, Brant is coming to town, bringing lots of jobs and revitalizing um, a, a factory that's being moved out of. Why aren't we excited? Why is the community in an uproar? It's because we're giving away $80,000 of the school district's money. Okay? There are other types of tax incentives that can be done. And more importantly, they need to be accessible to everybody because you have companies in the Portillo's case saying, these guys are getting almost $2 million in incentives, and it's not going to generate new business, okay? How many people are, are eating out more just because Patillo, Portillo's is there? They're going there instead of to Red Robin or to Chili's or somewhere else. So these other businesses are saying, I'm paying my taxes to underwrite my competition. How come I can't get a break? So if we're going to have an incentive program, it needs to be accessible to all, and you can do that through sales tax rebates, through enterprise zones, or through pre-negotiated tax incentives where the taxing bodies such as the school district, the library, et cetera, have come together and said, if anybody's bringing this many jobs or investing this much money, we were willing to give them this much of an abatement for so many years. And that's advantageous because now you can attract everybody to the community, not just the one player that you're after in a particular case. And they don't have to go through council approval after board approval after another board approval and wait and delay, which can kill projects. Now it's been prearranged. They just walk up and we can say, yeah, if you're bringing this, here's what we can give you. Let's go. So I want to see a more uniform package that's accessible to all. The, the facade grants were like that many years ago, at least locally to Uptown. And Patrick Hoban with the Economic Development Council is starting to push for that type of a project. One last note on the incentives is 
that whatever incentives are being generated have to be based off of new revenue. A lot of the incentives, Grant, Rivian, and so many others, were existing. Money that the school district was getting, they no longer get because it's being diverted to other developers. You can say that we're going to protect the existing revenue. And if they bring in something new, then we'll give them a piece of that. But we're not going to give away the existing revenue because somebody's already counting. Them. So that, that's the approach I would take. Well, we're about halfway uh, through. And usually, Mark, what we like to do at the halfway point is do like a rapid fire uh, question. Sure. And that helps spark some maybe conversation for the second half of the podcast. So what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll have Jeremy introduce it to you because it's his favorite game. So <laughs> you could be the contestant on Jeremy's show. Okay. Yeah. So, so just uh, looking for first thing that pops in your mind, you know, three words or less sort of thing, not a, not a long uh, sentence here, but um, first topic is uptown normal. You want me to respond to that? Yeah. We're just going lightning around here. Two to three, okay. two to three words. Way too expensive. Uh, Connect Transit. Needs a new board. Uh, Rivian. Rootin' for him. Illinois State University. Rootin' for him. (laughs) Uh, Sports Complex. Too late to the party. Urban Sprawl. Has stalled out. Uh, connect transit or i'm sorry uh, constitution trail love it and then economic development needs a different approach more universal access okay uh, is that it jeremy all right yeah yeah that's it i'm, I'm like if you i got one to jump up to if you want to yeah yeah you can go wherever you survived the lightning round and you touched on a lot of things. So we'll just kind of dive in uh, to what some of them. So connect transit, bold statement needs a new board. Let's talk about that. What, what, sure. I, and, I, and I know um, currently our normal council, Stan Nord has been uh, uh, someone who has really put pressure on, I'll say on connect transit in a lot of ways. Um, do you see yourself aligning with him a lot on this issue uh, or do you bring any other uh, new thoughts to that table? Um. The alignment is just, you know, one of have independently come to the same conclusions. I was keyed in with Connect Transit in the last election, but there were so many issues going on. And at the time, it wasn't as widely discussed and it was fairly intricate issues. So I didn't touch on it too much in the campaign. In between the last couple of years, yeah, it's really come to the forefront. And I think it's been a terrible mess over there. So um, we need to do things very differently at Connect Transit. And I think we need that's not going to happen until we have new people in charge at Connect Trail. So what what are some of the things that you that you're faulting them with? Um, because from from a perspective of someone that's maybe not, you know, meeting with Connect Trains and going to the board meetings, they're seeing uh, buses get ran, um, they're seeing new bus stops going in as a project that they've been doing for for a while. Um, and then in Bloomington, obviously, they they got that downtown transfer center that's that's getting spoken about. So what are some issues that you see them at fault at? So um, part of it is the philosophy behind it. Okay, so Connect Transit is heavily subsidized because they basically for every dollar they spend, they get two thirds of a dollar back from the state. And the previous management, so Isaac Thorne and uh, Martin Glaze, they both told me we don't want to cut our budget. That actually hurts us because if we cut a dollar, we lose two more. Our incentive is to spend more so we get more. And okay, right up front, you're setting yourself up for an inefficient, wasteful operation. 
So people can see the buses are way oversized. And the arguments that were given is, oh, well, you know, they, they last uh, twice as long. Okay, but they're eight times as expensive uh, in some cases. So I think there are different ways to do things. And public transportation, I used to be a transit dependent rider. I lived in Philadelphia for five years and I got everywhere on bicycles, buses, trains, trolleys, trams, commuter rail. I did it all. And um, you know, I understand some of the dynamics. So it's important to have, I'm not saying we should not have public transportation in this community, but the way they've been going about it, again, has been exclusionary. If you've ever sat at the board meetings and listened to some of the commentary from board members. And even the public working group, um, when you have so many people in the community, I mean, 50, 60 people saying, please, I'd like to participate. I'd like to be on this committee. And you wind up appointing one of your children, one of the board members' children to the board, qualified or not, that's just the wrong thing to do. And there's this been intertwining of just people on the inside to drive this forward, $60,000 on a consultant that they wound up throwing out the window anyway. It's been waste after waste after waste. I think we can do a much better job. Is there, what, what are they doing right? I think improving bus stops is a good thing. Um, you know, Mike McCurdy at one point said to somebody, well, you, you can't have a bus stop without a sidewalk. I'm like, you go to IAA Drive. You've got a bunch of them. You know, so they have been improving the bus stops, which is an interesting question because what is the future of, connect, uh, of transportation, public transportation? I think that's a bigger question that we're not really looking at right now. And between um, a lot of the infrastructure they're putting in place, especially with the transfer center, are we digging ourselves into something that's going to become obsolete in the very near future? So I think we need to take a harder look at that. But in the short term, yeah, people need access to bus stops. We need accessible ramps. There's stops that, you know, wheelchairs just can't get to. So I'm glad they are improving those. That is something that's going on. So last question I'll have on Connect and I'll let Jeremy chime in. Um, what's, the, what's the town's role in actually making any of those decisions? I mean, very little of the Connect Transit's budget is coming from the city of Bloomington or the town of Normal. Um, when right. you, and, you know, they are getting there. They've been very successful at securing state and federal grants for projects. Um, and I think with their success at that, you might see even further grants com coming down the road. I mean, why why should the town or city even be involved in that process when they have a when they have a board um, that not a lot of their budgets coming from the municipalities? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, our, it forms a complicated relationship. Um, I don't think it's right or wrong, but it's one that's worth looking at. So. If you have an independent board and you're saying, should the town be involved? Because some council members have said, we don't want to constantly look over their shoulder. Well, then they need their own taxing authority and let them be an independent board. With the current people, uh, that would scare the daylights out of me, quite honestly. So, um, but what can the town do? Well, the town does control a significant amount of, of their resources, uh, close to 10% of it, roughly five to 10%. Um, that makes a big difference in their operations. And the town, of course, is appointing the members of the board. So I think they do have a lot of influence. And according to the intergovernmental understanding, the town is supposed to be reviewing Connect Transit's budgets, and they haven't really been doing that. So um, that's a valid question. Is this the right arrangement between the town and Connect Transit? It's definitely worth looking at one way or the other. 
you actually hit on both of the issues that I was going to ask you about. Uh, the first one being the budget that while it's not a, a ton, you know, some of, of the funds from normal go to connect transit, if you were mayor, uh, would, would, do you think you'd find yourself into a situation where you'd say, um, Hey, you need to do this or with withholding money, would you be advocating cutting that funding or where, where are you at on that? Um, it would depend on, on the project, but I think that's the nature of, the arrangement. If you read the agreement, it says we bring that budget to the town for approval. And okay, what that means is if the town doesn't approve it, then we don't approve your money either. That's a pretty strong and heavy-handed approach. And I like to be much more diplomatic and inclusive, and you know, again, bringing all parties to the table. Uh, but currently, yeah, the town has that kind of authority. Um, but a better solution is: can we get some new people in here that I think are going to make better decisions? and uh, move things forward in a way where it doesn't come to something. And then you, the second question is more about the board appointment position. Um, you, you've talked quite a bit here about the, you know, being inclusive and making sure all sides are represented. Um, so curious as to your philosophy of uh, you were mayor, who you would be appointing, but the type of person you would be looking to appoint. And then secondly, how, how would you answer, you know, critics out there are saying, well, you're just going to appoint somebody that's going to go in and pound the table, flip the table, you know, kind of disrupt. Um, is, is that what you're looking to do, especially in light of, hey, they need a whole new board? Um, what's the type of, of, of representative you would look to appoint there? Well, the, the table flipping thing is, is not my style. But do I want people in there to advocate strongly for change? Yes. And so when I say we need a new board, it's because the current people have clearly said they're not in favor of change. They're clearly committed to the status quo. And there, there aren't any other voices on that committee right now. And that's what we need in there. Um, so it's, it's not about shaking things up in that regard. It's bringing people in who will, will have a different viewpoint. Um, Mr. Bauman was one of those folks and they, you know, he'd had enough and he wasn't reappointed. Um, we're stuck. The appointment was left open for a year and a half by Mayor Coots which uh, was really a problem because you had some good solid voices in the community who wanted to be on that board and say, you know, I, I want to speak up and represent people. And he said, no, no, I'm leaving it open for a year and a half. I, I think that was really a poor move. That was poor leadership on his part. I'm, I'm going to chime in just talking about board positions in general, not necessarily specifically connect transit. Um, but I always in part, so I, I serve on the Bloomington planning commission and, um, and I always like to remind people that the people that serve on those boards and those commissions are volunteer mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and those volunteers get a lot of criticism um, from public, from uh, sometimes media, from blogs, from traditional media um, and, and sometimes candidates. Right. In, in your case with Connect Transit. So I don't know. I don't know if there, I really have a question here, Mark. It's just more of a um, what can we do to better that relationship? And because doesn't that hurt? Here's my question, I guess. Doesn't that actually hurt? finding volunteers um, to serve on those boards and commissions when they feel like they're being attacked um, by all these different sources at once? You know, that's a great point. And I agree with you on that. Um, I'm going to answer it in a general sense. First, I think overall, we really need a, a better discourse in the community because not just the board, who the heck wants to run for office when, I mean, heck I get personally, I was attacked personally on day one. Okay. Um, you know, to some extent, it comes with the territory. As an appointed position, it should be a lot less. 
certainly. Um, but if we have more diverse representation, if we have true diversity of thought taking place in the discussion, then I think a lot of that furor dies down. Because what happens is, okay, somebody's upset at the decision, but at least they heard their voice, their thought, what they were thinking about actually spoken during the discussion by someone else. So it's like, okay, they looked at it. They explained why we're going a different way. Okay. That's a lot different than they come in, they sit down, seven, zero, here we go. Right. And, and the discussion doesn't really take place because it's happened ahead of time or because the other opinion just isn't represented. So in that regard, by bringing other voices into the board, not necessarily to flip tables, but to just have that diversity of conversation, then community at large sees all those things taking place. And I think we have a lot more satisfaction and buy-in with whatever decisions we finally get to. Do, do you think civility is lost in some of those, uh, maybe, you know, on the council as well? Just, I mean, I remember when I first started kind of getting involved you know, you would see on the county boards a good example because it is partisan. You would see Republicans and Democrats go at each other during a county board meeting and then walk across the street to Rosie's and <laughs> be able to have a beer and, have you know, have that conversation. And the feeling that I have is that that's been lost a lot in both communities, Bloomington and Normal, over the last four to, four to eight years. Um, do you see us rebuilding that as a community at all? And if so, how do we do there? How do we do that? We can, and I think we do it in the way I just described where we have better representation. Think about why we have that. Why do we have the uproar over this election? There were people who felt like they weren't being heard. We see this, but nobody's doing something about it. Whether you believe it or not, the issue was people didn't feel heard, and that's when things get unruly, regardless of which sides. So can we fix that? Absolutely. Um, I like to think I'm one of the people who can do that. A good example is, I don't know if you're familiar, there's an intersection of Shelburne and Tawanda. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the Hatfields and the McCoys. There's two fences, <laughs> both Trump flag with a light on it. Right, yeah. Trump flag with a light on it, and both fences have my banner on it. Um, I'm really touched by that, that, these, that we can have an election campaign that is about bringing people together, about having better representation, about sitting down and talking with everybody not just certain groups. Um, you know, as an educator, that's what I do. I don't get to pick and choose my students. They're here. I don't get to pick and choose their attitudes or their predispositions. I'm here to work with them, to make a connection with them, and to walk out of that room with them at the end of the day so that we both feel satisfied and smarter somehow. Uh, and that includes their parents too. Yeah. So um, that's how I approach education. That's how I approach governance and representation. And I do have hope for this community. If I didn't, I would just pack up and leave Illinois. <laughs> um, but I really feel called to be here. I love this community. When I came back from Philadelphia, my wife and I, we could have gone anywhere. And we said, you know, we want to come back to Bloomington Normal. It's a special place. And, um, and we did. And we're still here. We feel there's a difference to be made. And I am hopeful about the future. But it's going to take work. And I think we do that by having people in elected office that are willing to bring all sides into the discussion. Mark, there's been a lot of, oh, I'm sorry. I said, and I think I'm the best candidate. for There's been a lot of talk uh, in this campaign. Uh, you've, you've mentioned, you know, normally it's better priorities. There's been talk about that around debt, around spending. Uh, we've heard that from virtually every single candidate uh, running in, in council, uh, some, some version. So 
wanted to touch on that um, around around the debt specifically that uh, if, if one side you know is saying more, hey, look, uh, we invested a lot of money in Uptown Normal. Look at all the good things it's brought. Look at the private investment, you know, better community, et cetera. Um, I'm hearing, you know, other side more saying, well, we shouldn't be there. Uh, I think you've been kind of clear as as to some of your priorities in that regards. But you want to, for listeners, kind of paint the picture of where do you think we've got it right? Where are we going wrong? What's your view? How do you approach that over the next four years? Okay. So the plan itself, it, you know, I'm, it's not necessarily good or bad. They look great. But how have we gone about it? Um, so, okay, let's look at it from one standpoint of, yes, it, it is wonderful. It, it's done marketing wonders for the community. People come to ISU, love Uptown. Hey, yeah, I'm happy to send my kids here to, for four years. No problem. Um, will it be the economic engine of our community? No, you just physically can't stuff enough cars in there. I mean, compare Uptown with the activity you see over on Veterans Parkway. Okay. It's very clear where our economy lies. Now, is it does it help? And certainly we want a nice active uptown area, but um, that justification I don't think is there. So, okay, we borrowed $100 million. We had another 170 plus million come in from the private sector. So we've got a quarter billion dollars. And we've been working at this for 20 years and we still have buildings that have been sitting open for three years. First floor has never been occupied in one uptown circle. Marianne's Diner has been vacant for three years. We've got shops moving out. So. Just because we've had all that stuff come in and it looks great, it doesn't mean that uh, it's completely working. And then we need to look at the details of, okay, so we did borrow $100 million. We've started to pay it down somewhat. We're at about 82. We still have a lot of interest. We still owe nearly $120 million on this thing. Okay? We were debt-free 20 years ago. And half of the loans that we took out, we have a dozen loans for just the Uptown General Obligation Bonds and half of them are interest only right now. We spend more on the interest for the debt than we spend fixing our roads. So when you talk about priorities, I think that is a totally screwed up priority. We can't be investing so little in our roads. So is Uptown a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on are we taking care of the main priorities of government first? And I think we have poured money into Uptown at the expense of the infrastructure in the community. Even the roads in Uptown are starting to deteriorate. If you look at Linden Street, there are eight inch deep potholes right next to uh, the Uptown Street. So we've got to start focusing more of the money on the community. Unfortunately, Uptown has been a big drain on those resources. So how do we fix that? Well, we had an opportunity last month to take one of the loans and pay it off. We had the resources, we had a $6 million surplus it was a $1.8 million bond. They chose to refinance it interest only until 2038. We're going to spend more in interest than we actually borrowed originally. It's going to cost us more than double. And I see that as just a, an upside down priority. So I want to approach our debt in a different way. Uptown is going to be there no matter who wins the election. It's a question of how are we going to manage the resources to pay for it and take care of the business elsewhere in the community. And priorities. And, and that's where I was going to ask. So since it is done and, and since, you know, these are interest only um, I mean, you're identifying a lot of priorities. We, we need roads and more roads are coming up. Um, but it sounds like you're also saying we need to divert money to paying down the principal, not just the interest. Um, where do we get that money? Are, are we looking at fee increases and that sort of stuff? Are we having to cut? And, and if so, where? I mean, how, how do you manage out of it? Great question. So there are enough resources already coming into the community, into the town. 
we don't need to raise any new fees or taxes to do this. In fact, I think we can do all this and there's even a little room to maybe even reduce like the, the latest local motor fuel tax increase. Uh, the $6 million surplus is part of that. If we were to have paid that, we would have saved $2 million over the next 15 to 20 years. That's a significant amount of money. You have a lot of projects that have been going forward that don't need to. There's a water line that they want to run out to West College Avenue that is completely redundant. It's going to cost over $5 million to do so. And it's serving an area that is already served in an admittedly complaint-free way and has been for industry that has much more capacity than what we're going to be doing. Now. So that project is somehow deemed critical, shows up out of nowhere this year, when we've got water mains that have been giving groundwater to residents that weren't even slated to be repaired within the next five years. I, I think that's wrong. So one of these water mains would cost $800,000. There's a couple of others. So you still have more than enough money from that project that we don't need to do. And we can re-divert it to infrastructure projects that we should be doing in the first place. So it's a matter of redirecting some of these non-essential projects, taking the surplus that we already have. We have enough to do it. Mark, are, are you... Are you against municipal debt at all? So if, if you were to have a zero debt uh, as mayor, would you ever find a, see a way that you might want to get take take on that debt? Or would you be strictly with a no debt? I'm just trying to gauge because no, we're not, in that situation. It's hard to. I'm not against I'm not against I'm not saying no debt ever. Small amounts are fine. So uptown, um, you know, the justification is, well, we needed to do it. I mean, the infrastructure was 100 years old and they're right. But it only cost eight to $10 million to put in new water lines, new sewers and, and redo the streets. The other 90 million was big, shiny window dressing, you know, 80 inch TVs, hot tubs and pools in the backyard kind of stuff. Um, the infrastructure was fairly small project. So if you have an emergency, if you have something that you really do need to get done, you don't have the capital available. Yes, a bond is perfectly suitable. And if you don't have bond to begin with, I can see going 10 to $20 million and then, working to pay that down again, as a, an emergency project would come up or a particular, hey, this is a fantastic opportunity, we should really jump on. You do it in those types of things. But for a community of our sons, 55,000 and 20,000 of them are students, right? They're, they're counted. There's only about 35,000 townies in normal, and we're saddled with 100 million in debt plus 50 million in interest, and our pensions are 95 million behind. How are 35,000 people gonna come up with a quarter billion dollars? Okay, that, that's too big. The other way is you do it out of capital reserves. So if we have the ability right now to spend six to $7 million a year in interest and principal payments every year, well, guess what? A lot of these projects are in the five to $10 million range. So if you've got that kind of cash flow and you're not spending it on debt reduction, you just have it, then you can save up for a year or two and just pay cash. And without the bonding, it costs you 50% less. So uh, it's okay. not that I'm totally against debt but it needs to be more of a um, emergency tool. Yeah. A way of going. I, I think that makes it more clear for, for, yeah. for people. Yeah. Um, I, go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah. I was going to say, and just, just curious when you're talking through some of these very specific issues, you know, there's, I, I hear different people in different camps that say that's the mayor's call or that's the council's call or that's uh, city manager, professional staff's call, or, or you know, probably a, a collaboration between three. Um, where do you think the bulk of that, guidance or vision comes from or or should be vested in. That comes Does from that the make town sense? council. 
Absolutely. Great question. And it's the town council. They set the priorities. They set the vision. And it's up then to the city manager to assemble a staff to get that job done. And it is a two-way street because you have great people then that hopefully inform those decisions. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not a, you know, banking or finance manager. Um, we do have good people on staff. Part of the reason why the town has stayed afloat is because you've got good people working in the finance department, but they're, they're looking at this maze of restructuring, right? We've refinanced lots of these bonds already. They've got a whole bunch of other refinancing that they say is going to be necessary. So, I mean, it's kind of a spinning plate act to keep all of this stuff in balance, which tells you how difficult, how risky it is. So we do have some good people on the job, but I'm saying, you know, my personal point is we don't need to be taking that much financial risk in the first place. And that's absolutely at the council's uh, level of policymaking. Would there be any changes professional staff-wise that, that you're thinking like, nope, we need to go a different direction or? or No, again, because the, the policies come from the council and, you know, the town has been able to execute quite a lot of very difficult things, which means you have a very capable and effective staff. So if I come in and we get some other people on council and we have a, a different set of policies and priorities, then of course I want a good and effective staff to execute them. Um, so it's not that I need to come in and change personnel. We just need to have the council set a new group of priorities. Yeah, and I think that's key because you hear you hear uh, sometimes you know the do you support staff? Do you not support staff? And, and I think that's that's key to kind of get out there the opinion and and kind of where you stand. So yeah. I appreciate that. And Mark, we only got about five minutes left with that, which I wish we had more because we haven't even talked on about Rivian yet. So um, (laughs) I I, I am going to bring that up, but I just, I wanted to give you a forewarning that unfortunately we don't have a lot much time to talk about it. I know when, um, in 2016, when the Mitsubishi plant, we were looking at an abandoned Mitsubishi plant, I think you were quoted somewhere, and I'm going to misquote you, I know, but you were quoted somewhere along the line of, I think Rivian is the worst option. Um, So I, I I, I I wanted to get your take on, What's changed since then? Obviously, I'm not. I'm not holding you to you. You said uh, during the rapid fire that you are cheering for their success, which of course I hope we all are. Um, yes. But I just wanted you to expand on that and think: has, sure. has your mind changed on Rivian and how we incentivize that? Or give me your thoughts on it. Okay. So the comment at the time was the the discussion was all about being able to to have jobs, and and we all agreed Rivian was a huge risk. They were completely unknown. In a conversation I had with Mayor Coos, he even said, we didn't even have a pin in the wall to hang a hat on to, to know whether or not they were going to make. And so my comment was, if you want to guarantee jobs, you're going to have hundreds of them for a long time tearing this thing down, if, if that's the way to go. It's not that I wanted to see that happen, but if we were talking strictly about producing jobs, here's your surest bet, is to get the, the guys to come in with the heavy equipment. Um, bit of a harsh statement, but that's, that's what it was about. It's not that I said we should just tear it down and never try and develop it. That's not what I said. Okay. So very quickly, because I, I talked with RJ at length on several occasions, got to know him and what he's doing, and very quickly realized these guys have something going on. But the point is, they were going to come here anyway, right? They got a $49.5 million incentive package from the state of Illinois. They've got this world-class facility, quarter-billion-dollar facility they're getting for $16 million dollars. The reason they came here in the first place were these enormous hydraulic presses, some of the biggest in the world that could do an entire side of a car in one shot. And they're like, why would we pay to move them, which would be an enormous undertaking? We should just take over this place. So 
Point is, they were coming anyway, and why the school district had to commit their money to the process. We should never gamble with our children's future. Their money did not need to be in this deal at all. Okay, if it came down to $400,000 a year, the town could have made up the difference, no problem. But I don't think it would have. They were coming here anyway. And so my opposition was to the deal, the detail in the deal that was forcing the school district to give up the tax money. Because if Rivian succeeds, the value of the land doesn't go up, right? It's already got a factory developed up. The school district is just out the money. Rivian becomes a huge success. We got jobs, but the school district is still taking the same amount in property tax. So they were giving up existing money. That was the big problem for me. And they didn't need to. Rivian was going to come here anyway. It was a badly crafted deal. And it divided the community. Again, it's a failure in leadership when you've got a potential of a thousand jobs and a world-class manufacturer. Why aren't we all cheering for them? Why are we yelling and screaming at each other? Failure in leadership. So so quickly, again, I know we're running out of time and I apologize for that. Uh, but how would you, as mayor, how would you leverage Rivian today um, to create more job growth and opportunities in the future? We, we get them what they need. Okay? They are, um, we're not in a position to tell them how to operate. Not in any way, shape, or form. And they have, no matter how good anybody here is here in the town, you've got people that are backing them with billions of dollars. And even if they're not getting it right, billions of dollars on its, on its own will solve a lot of problems. So uh, we just need to make sure that they have the solid infrastructure. What I do know is that a lot of the people starting to work there are concerned about moving here because the taxes are so high because the roads are in such bad shape. I mean, these conversations are really taking place. So the way that we support Rivian and their growth is we get our act together. We take care of our infrastructure and prioritize that aspect of our community, which benefits all the residents and let Rivian take off and do their thing. That's how we work with them. All right, Mark, uh, we are running out of time. I wanna make sure I give you the opportunity to tell us and our listeners where they can find out some more information about you. Sure, so I'm at markformayor.com. I've got a Facebook page, Mark Turatilli for Mayor. You can look me up there. Uh, I've got contact information. Feel free to get in touch with me at any time. And uh, I'm always willing to talk to anybody. And when's the election? The election is April 6th. Early starts on February 25th at the BCPA, Monday through Friday, uh, 8.30 to 4.30. You can request a mail-in ballot right now, and they'll start mailing them out next week. Uh, those are the ways to vote. Please go out and vote. Last election was very close, only 11 votes. Your vote matters. I don't care who you're voting for. I want you to get out and vote. vote. Yeah. Your last you, election you, cycle is the big reason for everybody to get out to vote, right? Like Absolutely. <laughs> that's, the, that's the case study to show everybody yeah. that it matters. Um, voice, and you, vote is your and voice. You, and you said, uh, just to, for listeners' clarif clarification, that BCPA is where the early voting is, uh, not the arena like it was uh, last election. Right. In the past, they've had the arena, they've had the Bone Center and some other places. Only one location this time, uh, the BCPA, 830 to 430, Monday through Friday, starting on February 25th up to the election. Mark, we uh, we really do appreciate you coming on. Uh, we we don't have every mayoral candidate in Bloomington and Normal coming on, unfortunately. Some people don't have time for us, so we appreciate you taking the time for us. Um, but before we leave, I want to thank our sponsor, Little Beaver Brewery. They're located at Five Finance Drive in Bloomington. Uh, they're open 11 to 8 every day. I was just there yesterday for seeing the inside for the very first time uh, since they've redone it, and they've done a phenomenal job. they got a great outdoor space. Um, they're investing in our community, uh, putting us on the map for these craft brews. So go visit them. Check them out on Facebook uh, for more information. Little Beaver Brewery. Jeremy, you got anything else? I'm good. Thanks for your time, Mark. Appreciate talking with you. Yeah, thanks so Thank much, you. Mark. Thank you. Hope we see you down the road. 
All right. Have a great day. Bye.